All right, I'm, I'm Greg Boyd, senior pastor at Woodland Hills Church. Uh, it's, it's, it's good to be gathered together with God's people. Worship me a little bit, and then we're going to break open the word. If you're uh, visiting for the first time, I want to give a special welcome to you. Really glad that you're here. And uh, if you'd like to find out more about this church, what we believe, and things like that, stop by uh, at the, in the gathering area at the hub, and uh, tell them you're visiting, and we've got uh, some information and a CD we'd uh, love to share with you. Please turn off cell phones, pagers, iPods, droids, any other possible noise maker. I'd really appreciate it. And if anyone with you starts to be a distraction of any sort, we've got soundproof rooms in the back, and we encourage you to take them back there. No announcements, except for all those in the bulletin, so read the bulletin, pray over the bulletin, keep us covered in, in prayer, a lot of things going on. It's just that uh, we're going to trust your reading skills rather than using up time in the service uh, to tell you about it, so just know that that's going down. We are going to be having uh, a baptism service August 1st, that's I think two weeks, right? Is that right? I'm... We're halfway through summer. Ah! It's middle of July. Anyways, um, so August 1st, we'll be having this baptism service uh, after the second service, 2 o'clock at Lake Phelan. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about baptism this morning, do a little teaching around that. Uh, This isn't just for people who have not been baptized, because when we talk about baptism, it takes us to the very heart of the gospel. And it's uh, some good reminders about fundamental truths uh, of uh, what the kingdom is, is all about. And so I'm going to kind of do an overview of, uh, of baptism. It is a topic that I think, and I hopefully at the end of this message you'll agree with this, uh, it's far more important than uh, a lot of Western Christians think. So I want to title this message, The Betrothal Ceremony, because we'll see here that that is what, the, what baptism is really all about. And just to sort of prime the pump to get us thinking about this, I want to read from Matthew 28, 19. Which, where Jesus is given the Great Commission. And he says this to his disciples just before he ascends. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Pray with me here. Father, uh, I pray that we would never get used to baptism or any other part of the gospel and, and sort of take things for granted. Lord, always open our eyes to the beauty of, of the things you've given to us uh, to uh, initiate us into the new covenant and to sustain us in the new covenant and to grow us in the new covenant, Lord God. Uh, keep it new every morning, Lord. Keep it fresh. And I pray, Lord, that this word would be used as an instruction point, but also as an empowering and transforming point. But Holy Spirit, only you can do that. We don't trust in human words or in speeches or anything like that. We trust in you. So we yield this to you. Work in our hearts. Lord, there are folks here that you want to talk to about, uh, about being baptized. And I pray, Lord God, that you just use this message uh, to encourage them on as they are seeking to be your disciples. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. 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 The betrothal ceremony. Note in that passage that I just read that Jesus says, go and make disciples. And the first thing he says... First thing that, that, that fills out the meaning of what it is to make disciples is that you baptize them. Baptism is the first act of discipleship, at least that's how it was intended to be uh, in the early church. First thing people do when they surrender their life to Christ, first thing they do when they realize that they're in need of a Savior is they get baptized. There's a sense of urgency about it. It doesn't fit a lot of our modern paradigms around this, but but it's, it's, it's biblical teaching. 
So for example, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out and the crowds heard him speaking in tongues and all these other things. So they gathered around and then Peter starts preaching to them about the Messiah and they get convicted. And here's what happens, starting in verse 37. When the people heard this, when they heard Peter preaching, they were cut to the heart with conviction and said to Peter and the other uh, apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice that. What should we do to be saved? Well, you repent and get baptized. Baptism was not an addendum in the early church. It wasn't a secondary thing. It was part of that original gospel. This is part of what it means to enter into the kingdom. Later on in the book of Acts, we find Peter being told to go preach to these pagans uh, who had never heard the gospel. Cornelius was uh, the leader's name. And so Peter preaches to them, and as he's preaching to them, right in the middle of a sermon, and she's hate when God interrupts the sermon, uh, the Holy Spirit gets poured out. And all these people, they start prophesying and speaking in tongues. And the Jews are kind of surprised because up to this point, they thought that the salvation was just for them. And so now they're really, their eyes are being opened that God is an inclusive God. And then listen to what Peter says. He says, surely no one can stand in the way of these newly converted Gentiles being baptized with water. Since they've been baptized in the Spirit, they ought to be baptized in water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Notice this. As soon as Peter sees that the Gentiles are being incorporated, incorporated in the kingdom, he orders them to be baptized. So there's a sense of importance here, right from the get-go. As soon as someone align, aligns themselves with the kingdom, they're, they're baptized. Now let me say two things what baptism is not. Two common mistakes that people have about baptism. And then I'll say the main thing that baptism is. First thing that it's not. It is not an optional symbolic gesture. A lot of people have this idea that it's just sort of a, a, a kind of an ornament to the Christian life. That's why a lot of folks don't have this kind of New Testament sense of urgency about baptism. It's sort of a nice thing to do, you know, but it's not required, and so it's not really that all that important. It's just sort of a ceremony that, uh, that, that it, it's sort of an option. But notice this. In the passage we just read with, about Peter, he orders them to be baptized. Let's go back to it. Surely no one can stand in the way of these Gentiles being baptized with water. Since they believe in Jesus and receive the Spirit, we, they ought to be baptized. And then it says, so he ordered them to be baptized. He didn't make a little suggestion. Hey, when you get around to it. No, there's like, okay, this is what it means to enter in the kingdom. It's the first act of discipleship. You've submitted your life to Christ. Well, then the first thing you do is get baptized. But the second thing, that baptism is not, is that it's not magic. It doesn't magically wash away your sins. A lot of folks have this idea, especially if you've come from more traditional backgrounds, that, that baptism washes away your sins. So if you're not baptized, your sins aren't washed away. Somebody even goes so far as to say that you're not saved. Had a, a dear couple a couple of years ago who, whose, whose child was, uh, died very early on. And, and the parents of the husband were just distraught and livid because they didn't have their child baptized and these parents thought the, that meant the, bat, the baby was going to hell. And it caused, of course, as you can understand, a, a lot of grief and also a lot of family conflict. Now, you always have to, whenever you're assessing any theological position, whenever anyone tells you, you know, it makes a claim to some theological truth, 
always ask yourself the question right up front, what view of God is presupposed in this theological position? And remember, all of our theology about God has to be centered on Jesus Christ. So the question you got to ask is, is it consistent with the revelation of God in Jesus Christ that little babies and everyone else could be lost based on the circumstance of whether or not they were baptized? Notice that Jesus, throughout the Gospels, he's always coming against the idea that our relationship with God is defined by external behaviors or external rituals. The Pharisees believe that. you got to do these things and, and whatever, and that's what makes you right with God, as though God depended on external behaviors uh, to save you. But Jesus always came against that. And it goes just against the kind of character that Jesus reveals. I mean, he reveals a God who gives his life for all sinners on Calvary. Do you think that this same God would have someone whom he died for get lost on a technicality? Think about it. Imagine Jesus on the cross, and, and there's the thief next to him, and the thief goes, you know, can I be with you today in paradise? And you just imagine Jesus saying, well, were you baptized? And the guy goes, no, I just recently decided that you're my savior. <laughs> Jesus goes, sorry, dude, you missed the chance. Uh, quick, get him out of the cross, get him in some water. I, uh, no, you see, it just doesn't fit. Throughout the, throughout the New Testament, the, the general thrust of it, and you always got to see the forest through the trees. You can interpret some you know, various individual verses in, 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 in a certain way, but the, the, the general picture is our relationship with God. Our salvation is about our relationship with God. It, remember, don't frame it in a court of law. like it's, it's about technicalities. How do you get off the hook? How do you escape hell? No, no. Salvation is about participating in the life of God. And it's about a relationship. And so you have, throughout the New Testament, the, the truth over and over again. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It's about a trusting relationship. Now, baptism is very, very important, but lock this in. It's not magic. It's, it's not like God relies on an external ordinance in order to save you. So it's not an optional symbol, as though it's not important at all. But it's also not uh, a, something that, that salvation hangs on. What is it then? What is it? Here's what it is. Baptism in the New Testament is the initiating betrothal ceremony of the new covenant. Now listen to this because this is going to be new for, for, for some of you. Throughout the Bible, you find that one of the main metaphors describing God's relationship with his people is marriage. Yahweh is the husband, Israel, and the church is the bride. It's a dominant metaphor that runs throughout uh, the Bible. And so when Jesus comes and he describes himself, and John the Baptist describes him as the bridegroom, the Jews, of course, understood that this is Yahweh coming down to make a marriage proposal. This is God, the husband, coming to get his wife. And really, Jesus' whole ministry is God's way of saying, will you marry me? Will you marry me? The relationship that God wants with his people is a marriage-like relationship. Read Ephesians 5. He's looking for something. The closest we can get to the kind of relationship that God wants with his people is the one flesh relationship of a husband and wife. The covenant he's looking for is a marriage-like covenant, a passionate covenant, a vibrant covenant, a life-giving covenant. God doesn't want to be your employer. God doesn't want to be your taskmaster. He wants to be your lover. And so the, 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 the new covenant is a marriage covenant. Now, you need to understand that in the ancient world, 
in the ancient Jewish world, marriage occurred in two distinct stages. First, there was the betrothal period, and then there was the wedding. When people were betrothed, it's a little bit like our engagement, but, 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 more so, but, but it's, it's more intense than that. Uh, they were officially married. When you be, were betrothed to somebody, you could only get out of it by divorcing them. It, it was a, a for better or for worse thing once you said I do to the, the, this betrothal uh, period. This is the, but it wasn't the full marriage yet because it wasn't consummated. What would happen is people would be betrothed to one another. They were officially married, but they didn't consummate the marriage usually for a year or two. And the husband would go away and prepare a place uh, for the bride, a place for the family. He'd get gainful employment. He'd learn. He'd prepare himself to be a husband. And during this betrothal period, the wife, the spouse, would prepare herself to be a good wife. And then at the right time, the husband would come back and then get his wife, and they would have a marriage ceremony, uh, and then they'd live happily ever after. So it was in two distinct stages. Mary and Joseph, hopefully they didn't live Mary happy ever after. Mary and Joseph were in this betrothal period, which is why when she got pregnant, it was such a scandal, because you weren't supposed to consummate this until after the wedding. We are in this betrothal stage. When we say yes to Jesus Christ, we are betrothed to him. We are officially married. Now, we're still looking forward to him returning. And, and that's when the marriage will be consummated, as it were. This is what the Bible talks about, the marriage supper of the Lamb, this wonderful festival, this banquet that we'll have when the kingdom comes in its fullness. Right now, Jesus is going to prepare a place for us. That's why he says in John 14. And this is the bridegroom speaking to his, his bride. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you with me so that you may be where I am. We're waiting for that. In the meantime, we're in a bet this betrothal stage, waiting, preparing ourselves. He's preparing, and we're to be preparing. The bride is to be making herself ready. This is why this life is all about growing and, 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 and learning how to live in God's ways. That's why accountability and community is such an important aspect of this, because we're to be helping one, uh, one another uh, get ready. Now, in the Bible, whenever there's a new covenant entered into, there's always a, an initiating ceremony. There's a sign of the covenant, but also a ceremony of the covenant. And so when people were betrothed in the ancient Jewish world, they had a ceremony around it. It wasn't the full wedding that they would have later on. It was more informal than that. But it was a binding ceremony nonetheless. And so too, as we are waiting for our Lord to return, when we're betrothed to him, God's initiating covenant ceremony is baptism. This is the means by which we publicly acknowledge that we are entering into this new covenant. We publicly acknowledge that we're aligning ourselves with the bride, which means we're publicly acknowledging that we are uh, uh, being part of the kingdom community that is the corporate bride of Christ. And in the ancient world, as, as soon as uh, the couple agreed that they wanted to get married, as soon as the woman would say yes, they would arrange this uh, initiating ceremony, this betrothal ceremony. Which is why, in the New Testament, as soon as someone says, I do, as soon as someone surrenders their life to Christ, boom, they're baptized. The, 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 initiate, the, the call of the gospel in the New Testament is, do you want to be married? If yes, let's have a ceremony. Repent and be baptized. It's the first act of discipleship. Now, what does it mean to say yes to Christ? Which is to ask, who is qualified to be baptized? What does saying yes mean? It means this. First of all, it means that you have faith in Jesus Christ. 
You have to first believe in Jesus Christ, believe he's Lord, believe he's the Son of God, believe he died for your sins, and other fundamental biblical truths. But remember that in, 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 in the Bible, faith is more than just mere intellectual belief. It's trust. It's trust. And so to have faith in Jesus is to trust him, as we just sang about, standing on the promises of God. Do You put your trust in him as a covenant partner, just like when people get married. I need to intellectually believe that my wife exists for me to marry her. It's very hard to marry her if I don't believe she exists. But believing that she exists doesn't mean I'm going to be married to her. I believe you exist, and I don't think I'm married to you, right? So it, the faith that is a marriage goes way beyond mere belief. A lot of people can, you can believe that Jesus is Lord. doesn't mean he's your, your Lord. That's just an intellectual belief. The question is, do you trust him as Lord? Do you trust him as Savior? Do you trust him as the Son of God? And, and to enter into this saving covenant relationship, this betrothal uh, ceremony, means that you trust that he'll be faithful. You trust his promises. You trust his character. You trust that he'll be with you for better or for worse, just like in, in human marriages. You trust that however bad things may be going, that his character is the same. You trust that nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. You trust his promise that he'll be with you until the end of the age. You trust that he'll be at work in your life to bring good out of evil. And so on and so on and so on and so on. That's what it means to be married to Jesus Christ. You pledge your faith in him. But it also means this. It means you pledge to be faithful to him. Faith in the, the New Testament is a covenant term. In fact, everything in the Bible pretty much has got to be understood, understood in terms of covenant where people pledge themselves to one another. Faith is a covenant term. It is, the, it is the glue that holds the covenant together. And so when you enter into covenantal faith with Jesus Christ, you trust him to do his part in his covenant, save you and to forgive you and to walk with you. But you're also pledging to be faithful to him. You can't separate the one from the other. And just like in a human marriage, when, when the spouse says, I do, they're pledging their faithfulness. The I do is not simply, I do believe in you, but I do commit myself to you. And so when the young lady says, I do, what she's saying, and it's what the man's saying as well, you're saying, I now pledge myself to you. I now pledge to close all other doors of potential spouses. I pledge to stop living as a single person. I pledge to stop thinking in terms of possibilities every time I meet another attractive person. I, I pledge to honor you as my husband. And the husband says, I, I pledge to honor you as my wife and to close all other doors of possibilities and to live, no longer live as a single person. So also, what it means to, to enter into a covenant with Jesus Christ. And this is what baptism is all about is you are pledging not only to trust the character of God, but you're pledging yourself to him. You're, you're pledging, I will no longer live my life as though you are not Lord of my life. I will no longer live as a single person trying to get life from other gods, trying to get life from the American dream and from my achievements and from what people think about me. I pledge to forego all the other idols. I pledge now to seek first the kingdom of God. I pledge to no longer be Lord of my own life and call my own shots and do my own thing. I pledge to no longer just live in the question of do I want it and can I afford it. Rather, I pledge to always submit my decisions to you and my life to you and to seek first the kingdom of God 24-7. That's what it means. See, that's not just sort of super sanctified, Holy Spirit-filled Christian living, as though, as, as though, you know, there's two classes of Christians, the minimalist and the maximalist. No. 
this is what it means to, to get married. You know, there's not like two classes of marriage, one where you pledge to be faithful to your wife and the other one where you don't. <laughs> Some have tried that. It doesn't work. No, no. What it means, what it means to make him Lord is that you're submitted to him. And so it's a pledge of faithfulness to him as much as a pledge of faith in him. This is why. Listen up on this. This is why you, you find, as we saw earlier as in the verse we read, the Bible always says, repent and be baptized. Repentance always precedes baptism. Now, the word repent, metanoia, simply means to turn around, to do an about face, a 180-degree turn. People get really screwed up on this term because they think it's an emotional term. I heard a radio guy one time several years ago tell a person who called in, uh, who was, you know, and the person said, was talking about their conversion, and they want to know how they're really saved, and this radio host, AM Christian Radio can be really scary, folks. Um, I, Listen to it with a grain of salt. Uh, but uh, this, the, the radio person says, well, when you repented, were there tears shed? Was there genuine remorse? The person says, I, I don't remember that. The person says, well, then I seriously question the genuineness of your repentance and therefore the genuineness of your salvation. What, what a thing to afflict someone with. You know, the word just means you turn around. That's all it means. In fact, they used it in the military. When the captain wanted to say about face, the way they do it in the first century was they say, metanoia, repent, and they turn around. But I doubt a lot of soldiers were crying over that. Oh, we were going the wrong way. No. It can be, you know, sometimes when you turn and you wake up to how vile your sins are. Other times, you know, for me, I didn't feel a lot of remorse over the wrong I did. I just knew that, that I wasn't in the right place. I find that the closer I get to God, the more I realize how vile my sin is. But that comes as a result of growing in Christ, not as a precondition for it, you see? And so it just means you turn. It can be a very, very intellectual decision. When my dad gave his life to Christ after our three years of correspondence with one another, it was over the phone and it was just sort of, he honestly said, he says, well, you know what, I, I think I've ran out of, of, of objections. Uh, I think I just need to do this. That's what he said. I, I, I just, I don't have any more. I, I guess you're right. Now, as he grew, he, his heart softened towards the Lord. But it wasn't there at, at first. He wasn't crying or anything. No, it, it just means you turn. But you do turn. You see, this is what it is to pledge your life to Christ. You're going this way. You're going, you're going one way. And, and however it may have looked, maybe it would look really debaucherous and evil. Maybe it looked pretty good. But, but the way that is counter the way of Christ is it always involves you as the center of the universe. You're always Lord of your own life, calling your own shots, doing your own thing. To give your life to Christ means you end, you stop doing that and you start doing this. I turn. I'm now going to commit to living a Jesus way of life. I'm going to commit to being involved in the community of God's people and, and swimming upstream in the culture and things of that sort. Metanoia. Repent and be baptized. Turn around and now join the kingdom community. And that means you partake of this initiating betrothal ceremony. This is why it's our conviction that anyone who's going to be baptized needs to be old enough to make a responsible decision to turn. It's the first act of discipleship, which means they need to be old enough to be a disciple. To be one, literally, it means one who's disciplined by another. It has to be a, a responsible decision. Remember, this isn't about salvation. Some people get you know, worried that, oh, my kid, if they die and, and they haven't been baptized, they're going to go to hell. No, go back to that earlier point we made. It's not about salvation. It's about a time, a coming of age, when you realize that you need to turn and now surrender your life to Jesus Christ. 
we, we, basically it means this. If, if baptism is the betrothal ceremony by which we join, align ourselves with the corporate bride, it means you have to be old enough, you should be old enough to responsibly get married. Because that's what you're doing. You're getting married to Jesus Christ as much as you would any human partner. Now, immediately see people are freaking out because they're going, well, we don't get married until 29 years old in this culture. That's true, but our culture is very, very weird. I, I, no culture has ever put off marriage the way we do. And it has to do with our consumer culture. We want to shop around, look at our options, and all this other kind of stuff. In most cultures throughout history, including first century Jewish culture, the average age that a young lady would get married would be around 12, 13, or 14 years old. Men would uh, get uh, married a little bit later, typically, uh, but, but it, it was still in their teen years. Um, and so we recommend that a person, usually when they're around 12, 13 years of age, uh, is, is ready for this. Now, parents know their kids better than, you know, uh, the general church leadership would. So some kids mature early, some kids, well, never mature, but, uh, you know. And so they're, 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 there's some, some space there, but we, they should be old enough to make this responsible decision. Now, some people ask, understandably, well, wait, I was baptized as an infant. Are you saying that didn't mean anything? Are you saying that that's invalid? Here's how I, I would think about uh, infant baptisms. In most cultures throughout history, uh, before a person got married in, in their teen years, they were pledged to be married by their parents. Uh, and and a, good, a good percentage of cultures throughout history, marriages were arranged. And usually it was to, you know, uh, social network or to move up uh, the social strata or to get a business arrangement. Uh, you'd pledge your son to the daughter, the daughter to the, to, the, to the son. And that happened when they were still infants. And, and you can think about infant baptism that way. It's a pledge on the part of your parents to betroth you to Jesus Christ. And it's valid as that. But even in those cultures where you had arranged marriages, there comes a time where the husband and wife have to own it for themselves. They have to say, okay, what our, we will now take to ourselves what our parents pledged for us. Now, in some cultures, it's against the law to go against your parents' will, but you still could do it. You could raise a fit, and there's accounts of this happening where the woman or the guy just says, forget it, I'm not going to do this. Uh, and, and so there has a, there's a point where they say, I do for themselves. And, and that's how we see adult baptism. It doesn't invalidate infant baptism. To the contrary, it completes it. You're now saying that what happened back then, I'm owning for myself. And so now you are betrothing of your own free volition. You're betrothing yourself to Jesus Christ. One final point I want to make here, and that is this, and it's a very important point. The mode of baptism reflects its meaning. Whenever God has an initiating ceremony, there's usually things about the ceremony that communicate a fundamental truth about the covenant that you're entering into. And this is definitely the case with regard to baptism. The word baptism... Baptizo, it literally means to dip or to immerse. It's a Greek word for dip. In fact, it's used in a number of contexts that aren't, don't have any religious significance. So, for example, when Jesus is talking about the guy who's going to betray him at the Last Supper, Jesus says, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And the word dip there has the same root as baptism, bapto. It means to dip or to immerse. And then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot. And I called him out. But the same word is used there. It means to dunk, to dip, to immerse. And you can see, if you read the New Testament carefully, that this is how they did it. Throughout the book of Acts and in the Gospels, when they baptized, there's indications that they were immersing. I'll just give uh, three examples of this. 
Uh, there's one instance where, where uh, Philip, the missionary, is, is talking to this guy. He's an Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, and, and he was riding this carriage, and Philip jumps on board the carriage and starts to explain to him the gospel. As they're traveling along, this happens. It says, uh, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Now, first of all, notice, we, we don't know how long they were riding this carriage together, but this is the first message that this guy ever heard, and he has enough knowledge to, when he sees water, he wants to get baptized, which tells us that baptism was part of the original message that all people received in the first century. The point I want to make here, however, is this. Why, did, why was it when he spotted a, a, a body of water that he said, now, now, now I want to be baptized? Because everybody in those days carried water flask. I mean, you, you can't walk around in that kind of Mediterranean heat and not have water with you. That was just common. Everyone carried their water flask. And if baptism was simply a matter of sprinkling, well, then that would have been easy to do right in the carriage. But when they come upon a body of water, he says, now, you know, what should prevent me from being baptized? It suggests that baptism involved the whole self, a dipping and immersing. Another little indication is John chapter 3. It says, now John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem because there was plenty of water there and people were coming and being baptized. Polus means an abundance. Why did the people come out to John? Uh, why did they need an abundance of water? Uh, why couldn't John, having just a water flask, have walked around all the towns and sprinkled them? Why did they have to come out to him? Why did it have to be the River Jordan? It suggests, I submit to you, that the way that they did baptism required enough water to go under. And you can't get that with a water flask. They were immersing people. A final example is Mark chapter 1. It says, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now look at this. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water. The image you get is he's facing up the sky as he's coming up out of the water and he sees the heavens opened and the Spirit descending. You can only come up out of the water if you first went down into the water, which suggests that Jesus was, in fact, immersed. And so our understanding of baptism is that it's to be done to people who are responsible enough to make a, uh, a marriage-like decision for themselves, and it's to be done by immersion. And there's actually a lot of significance in that. It's brought out in a real clear way in, in Romans chapter 6. Here Paul is addressing these, these Roman Christians who got kind of muddled in the head because they concluded, as I've known some American Christians to conclude, that if God saves us by grace and he loves to forgive us, well then let's just keep on sinning so we'll give him more to forgive us for. What a great arrangement. He loves to forgive, we love to sin, woo, we're going to have a party. Let us sin that grace may increase. And Paul is just livid here. He's just livid. And so he says this. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. In the Greek, it's megenito. May it never be. Forbid the thought. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Okay, so he's saying, look at it. When you, when you are incorporated in Christ, you're dead to sin. That's what's real about you. Why keep on living as though that was not true? And then he says... And we are, uh, uh, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. This takes us to the heart of the good news, folks. And it's beautiful. When God rescued us, when God came down for his bride, he immersed himself. He immersed himself in our humanity. He became a human being, right? And he immersed himself in our sin and he immersed himself in our condemnation. That's what Calvary is all about. God plunges into us. When we reciprocate, when we say yes, we respond in kind. We're immersed into Christ Jesus. We're identified with Christ Jesus such that what happens to him happens to us. Just like what happened to him is what should have happened to us, so also what happened to him actually happened to us. Our, our, our histories become intertwined when we identify with Jesus Christ. Uh, and so when Jesus died, Paul is saying, we died. He's not just talking poetry here. This isn't some little metaphor. In some spiritually profound way, when we say yes to Christ, we're put in Christ so that his death is now our death. And his resurrection is now our resurrection. It's as though we were really there, and in some sense we were. And so Paul is saying, you guys, don't you know who you are in Christ? You, you can't go on sinning that grace may increase because now... You, you, the old self is dead. It's gone. Why keep on living as though it was still alive? And you've got a new life in Christ Jesus. And to get them to realize this, Paul reminds them of their baptism. He goes, okay, you, you, you muddled-headed Roman Christians, did you forget? Think about your baptism. When you went down into the water, you identified with Christ's death. You are dead. Did you forget that? And when you come up out of the water... You're identifying with his new life. Did you forget that? And so baptism here is, is sort of like he, he's using it, this, this initiating ceremony, to remind these Christians of their identity. We are people who have died and are risen again. Our old self is gone, dead, and buried. We are now new creatures in Christ Jesus. Behold, old things have passed away. All things are new. We've got righteous Jesus DNA running through us. We're, we're holy and blameless in his sight. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. We're empowered. We really have the power to live free of sin. Now, our brains are still screwed up, so we don't see ourselves that way, and, and we don't feel that way a lot. And the whole process of discipleship is getting our brains and our hearts to catch up to what's real about us. But Paul here is saying, he's, he's treating baptism as sort of the tombstone of the old self and the birth certificate of the new self. He's saying, look it, when you went down in the water, that's your tombstone. You are dead. If you forget that you're dead, just look at your tombstone. Oh yeah, I'm dead. I forgot for a moment. You're dead. And then when you come up out of the water, that's your birth certificate. And so if you forget that you're a new creature in Christ Jesus, you look back on your baptism and you say, oh yeah, I came up out of the water. I'm alive. I'm new in Christ. The tombstone of the old self, the birth certificate of the new self. It's our identification, our immersion into the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the initiating ceremony. And uh, notice that, that having a tombstone doesn't make you dead. And having a birth certificate doesn't make you alive. Baptism does not save you. But if you are dead, you ought to have a tombstone. If you are alive, you ought to have a birth certificate. If you are part of the bride, you ought to have a betrothal ceremony. In fact, the New Testament commands it. So on August 1st, uh, uh, we're going to be doing this. And I want to invite everyone who has not yet been baptized as an adult to seriously consider doing that. I also want to encourage everybody who already has to come and be a part of this. Because this is a community event. 
Uh, this is the bride getting bigger. This is the bride welcoming in uh, new people. And, and come and be a part of that. I'm going to end by just showing you a little video clip of the baptism service two years ago. Here's a little bit what it looks like. took my walk with Christ last July and really made the decision to give my life over and the reason I'm being baptized is because God's really taught me some really special things one of them is forgiveness and how you know he forgave those that really sinned against him I, that's the one thing in my life that I've taken away from all of this and this is a great great time to actually come here and, and really solidify that commitment I have with God and and the, the special thing is is that my people that have ushered me into Christianity are going to baptize me today oh, what a it was something that we just wanted to commit to each other um, and to commit to ourselves and to share that with our children and so it's just a, the representation of our past going down and our future coming up and we struggle with a lot of self-confidence issues, a lot of things that the enemy tries to get in between, try to kill your confidence and uh, just, it just it tries to steal that, that gift of peace and eternal salvation. And, we're free. When <laughs> at the cross, my Savior made me whole. Sins were washed away, and my night was turned to day. When heaven came down and glory. ask that my mind be renewed and that my anxiety be completely cleansed from me and I feel like I was left in the lake behind me. Mike and I got baptized today because we love God and God loves us. And we both really felt it and we knew it and we've talked about it a lot and we've always had God's support. So we wanted to make that statement. We wanted it public. We wanted people to know that we, we love and we're loved and we want to love everyone. beautiful it's beautiful so amen a lot of uh, folks are uh, baptized with their small groups and that's totally uh, valid throughout the year we have people doing that uh, sometimes uh, folks come with their small groups and because you don't have to be uh, you have to be baptized by a reverend any any believer uh, can, can can baptize you 
And so sometimes folks come uh, with their small group and they're baptized. Others then are baptized by some of the leadership of the church. But all this will be happening August 1st. And if you are interested in learning more about baptism and, and pursuing this, we've got two classes being offered. Uh, there's information about that in, in the bulletin. Um, you can sign up uh, out in the gathering area or you can sign up on, on the, the website. Uh, but we do ask that you take these classes uh, before that, that event. And everybody else, I encourage you to come out and be a part of this because it's community. It's about community and about welcoming people. We're, we're going to be witnessing a marriage, uh, a wedding of sorts. And come out and be a part of this. I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward. And if you're here and have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward and, and pray about that. Also, we've got homework in the back. If you want to go further and just you know, think about this, I encourage you to pick that, that homework up. Uh, let me close in this prayer. Father, uh, thank you, God, for being a God who immerses yourself into ourself that we could be immersed into you. And thank you, Lord God, for this beautiful uh, ceremony that you've given us as we enter into this covenant. And I pray, Lord God, that every person here uh, you know, who, who needs to uh, be thinking about this would be thinking about this and pull on their hearts, Lord God, and prepare them for this beautiful ceremony on, on August 1st, Lord God. Uh, as we leave this place, let your spirit shine in us and through us. Let your love shine in us and through us. Help us to be a people who have uh, dedicated ourselves to no longer living as though we're single, to no longer living as though we're Lord of our own life, but to reflect our submission to you and the beauty of your reign in our life to all around us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom.